I think one of the biggest mistakes in religion, period, is we have made it where people cannot fail. And when they do fail and fall, we have made it so hard for them to return because we have put ourselves in the place of God. And they feel like they have to meet these requirements before they can return. I believe and live this. Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I need mercy from God. But backsliders refuse to come back to our apostolic churches because they feel like they've got to meet a certain agenda or criteria or they got to meet, you know, the you know, they got to live up to expectations. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to The Crucial Conversation podcast. Tonight we are sitting down with a good friend of ours. Um, we used to be a lot closer than we are now. I'm talking about driving distance-wise, because this time we had to hop on an airplane to come see you. I wish you would come a little closer back to home. But we're in Kingsport, Tennessee with Pastor Jeremy Damesworth. Bro, thank you so much for inviting us into your awesome church. Uh, you put us up in a great hotel. I get to drive your new car. Man, you've treated us like royalty this weekend. Thank you so much for having us. We're honored that you're here. Well, we got some questions we want to get into. Uh, we got a bunch to get into, so let's just go straight for it all. Um, I know a little bit about your past. My uh, my uh, in-laws think the world of you. They think you're one of the greatest guys in the world. As a matter of fact, my mother-in-law told me that she should have made you some no-bake cookies to bring. Now that is right. <laughs> so what's what's the story with the no bake cookies? What's the big deal here? Well, they're just good. No, the I I'm, I'm not a fan. Um, but okay. you're not a fan of the no bakes, man. That's all we have when we have a family get together. That's uh, right, the Ramsey uh, house. Yes, yeah, they're just good. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about you, where you come from, how you got involved in all this. Just start at the beginning. I um, began ministry. Uh, at around the age of 16 years old, I did not um, really want to be a minister. I wanted to be more involved in music, um, Southern gospel music. That's God's music. Um, <laughs> wanted to be involved in Southern gospel music, but uh, the Lord had different plans, and um, I began to minister. Uh, began to minister at other churches, and that led us uh, to student ministry. Uh, and that uh, role led into us working at Lighthouse Ranch for Boys uh, for two years and then moving to Steele, Missouri to start a church there um, in December of 2001. And uh, God led us there for 16 uh, years, and now we are here pastoring in Christian Life Center here in Kingsport. Well, that's that's a broad jump from... Steel, Missouri to Kingsport, how, how did you know it was time for a transition? Is that hard? Yes, it was very hard. Um, it was um, something that I really prayed against, um, a rebellious minister. Uh, for two years, the Lord began to deal with me about leaving our church in Missouri. 
and I didn't want to. Um, I was walking across the front lawn of our home that God had blessed us with, um, and the Lord spoke to me and said, you need to sell your home. And immediately I knew who it was, and I said, no, sir, I don't. Um, and it started from there about two years before our resignation in Steele. Uh, we hosted a conference in uh, Steele at uh, church, and um, the first year, um, a minister, uh, Scott Trailer, came up to me. He was one of our sponsors of this meeting, and he came up to me and he said, um, what would you do if the Lord were to um, call you to another city? I said, oh, don't you know, talk like that. God isn't calling me nowhere. Uh, I'm here to stay. Um, and he said, well, just, you know, just keep it in your mind. And then another year later, uh, at the same conference, uh, men began to come up to me and said that the Lord was moving us uh, soon. And I just, I knew it, but I just really didn't want to accept it because when you um, start a, a work, a home missions work, now North American missions, when you do that and you put your, your time, your emotions, your everything you've got, every resource you've got into that, it's just really hard to leave. Um, I wasn't being forced out. People didn't want us to leave, but it was just something I felt God uh, was doing. It was, it, it was emotional um, for my family. It was just um, a time that was very difficult, but I knew I'd heard from God. And at my resignation, people was asking me, Pastor, where are you going? I, well, I don't have a clue. Uh, are you sure? I mean, yeah, I don't have a clue. Uh, has God spoke to you? Yes. Then why didn't he tell you where to go? Because that time is not right at this point. Trying to explain that to my wife and my children was very, very difficult. Because the... Uh, security that we had was being taken away from us um, and because of us finding the mind of God. And so we resigned, and I just knew I would resign on a Sunday and 30 days later uh, I'd be preaching general conference and every minister and UPCI would be calling and you know church's doors would get the flowing open and there we'd be in 30 days, but it didn't work like that. It was a lonely, lonely, lonely time. Uh, probably one of the most lonely times that I've ever had was during that transition. But God knew, and God placed us in the right place at the right time, and that's how we're where we're at now is because of uh, the leading of the Holy Ghost led us here. Well, during that time after you did resign the church and still you actually came to Brian and I's home church in Jonesboro. Uh -huh. And while you were evangelizing for that short period of time, and one thing that I noticed, you just said that you went through the, one of the darkest times and you didn't really understand a lot. But through that, even from before that, you are a worshiper and you right. have pra you always give praise and worship and um Whenever you were at our church, you never lost your worship, even though you were going through that dark time. Right. What is what is the value and the importance of that? Uh, worship is what moves you uh, into the presence of God. And as hard as it was um, to move in to move into worship, I knew that if I could 
worship, then God would speak. Uh, throughout the um, scriptures, you um, worship leads you into the presence of God. And without the presence of God, we cannot make decisions that are going to be life-changing experiences. Uh, worship has always been a part of me, but it's hard to worship when you know that you're, you're, you feel lonely. You feel, um, I, I felt like when I resigned the church, I was letting so many people down. Uh, and, and my worship is what would propel me into the presence of God to where I could find um, that, that time that he would speak to me. Even when I was at your church on that specific night, I remember it. It was in the month of December, um, and uh, it was around the end of the year. We had resigned just you know 90 days before that. And um, we were we were in a time that uh, um, was unprecedented. It, but at the at the same time, it was God leading, and he he would tell me, Jeremy, if you would just worship and push your way into my presence, I'm going to take away the feeling that you feel. Mm. And so, in my loneliness, I would drive up to a church to minister, and I would say, God, what am I doing here? I'm not supposed to be here. I'm, I'm supposed to be in Steele, Missouri, but you told me to leave there, so why have you got me here? And so I had to get out of my car, walk into a church, knowing that I was only there for one, two, maybe three services at the most, and I would have to worship my way into feeling like now it's time for me to preach. It's time for the let the Holy Ghost minister to me and through me because worship is what got me, and for the lack of better words, got me into the mood to have church because I'm not going to have dead church. Every church I go to, I, I don't go to dead churches. They may be dead when I get there, but when I leave, it's going to be something's going to happen if I got to shout all around them and you know do what I do what God has called me to do. And so I would say worship is so vital to an individual that that's depressed, has anxiety, feels like they're they don't fit or connect into ministry or to that local church that if they will worship their way into the presence of God then everything happens at, at that point. Mm -hmm. New meaning comes, new direction comes, and God speaks directly to me through worship. I've been worshiping a few weeks ago here in our local church. I was worshiping, and God spoke to me, and he gave he give me uh, a family in our church that was having some very difficult times financially. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have picked up on that if I had not have been worshiping. No doubt, God speaks directly to us or to me personally through worship, and that's why I do it every chance I get. What if I'm not quote unquote emo emotional like you though? Well, um, I heard a message a little while ago that says we all have emotions. Just we prioritize ties how we use those emotions but if you're not outward emotionally like me then there are ways that you can worship your way into the presence of God 
Yeah, I, I have uh, my gym classes when I come to church. You know, I make sure that, you know, that I worship God. Uh, but some people come into the house of God, they're depressed, they're lonely, and, and they, they don't feel like dancing and shouting and leaping for joy. But they sit there and tears just stream down their face and they weep before the Lord. That's a way, a form of worship. Then there's some people um, that cannot do neither of those things. They just sit there. But in their own way, they are worshiping God and God speaks to them. When I first started ministry, if I didn't have 90% of the crowd on their feet worshiping God, I felt like I was a failure. After five years of pastoring, it didn't matter to me if they moved or not. Somewhere in that message, God spoke to them and God ministered to them. And I would see the fruit of that at a later time because they would say something that God had spoke to them through a message. And so, you know, running and dancing and all that's good, but some people never do that. But I think at some point you're going to show some kind of, of emotion in, in worship, whether it be just there with your hands folded, with your eyes closed, you're crying and praying before the Lord. I believe that's possible. And um, I learned that the hard way uh, because I beat too many people up for not worshiping. But later in my ministry, I seen that it was, you know, people have their own way of worship. How important is it? Uh, for you as the pastor and leader of a local congregation to be the worship leader because I've always heard that we have we give people title of worship leader but really the only real worship leader in the church is the pastor do you agree I agree a hundred percent a pastor sets uh, the the leadership role for worship in his church Um. I cannot ask somebody to worship if I do not worship. Some pastors I'm great friends with, they don't have outward worship like I do. But they worship in their own way, and that brings forth worship from the people. The pastor I was raised under all of my life until he just a few years before he passed was not like me. But he would sit at his seat with his hands raised, and he would weep, and he would cry. And that was an, uh, would move through the sanctuary, and people would then begin to shout and begin to dance. So whether if that pastor worships like I do or in another form, I believe we set the role as pastors uh, to lead our congregation in worship because if it's not shown in the pulpit, it will never reproduce itself in the pew as far as worship goes if I, whatever i preach is what they're going to practice and if i don't worship the saints the saints are not going to worship so i want to ask you then what makes a good leader well what a question <laughs> to me a good leader um and, and i've had to learn this along along the way um to me a good leader surrounds himself well just let me say what I do in, in, in my life I surround myself with a revivalist I have people that sit at my table I have a pastor and I have three mentors in my life 
that have helped mold me into the leader that I am today. Good leaders are always teachable. We never learn too much. We can always learn from somebody, somewhere, somehow. Every situation, we learn something. To me, that, that's the making of a good leader. But a good leader has to have a foundation. To me, that foundation is through personal prayer, through personal study, and personal convictions. A good leader has personal convictions that when everybody else is doing something, they have their own convictions and they say, I'm not going to cross that line because God has given me this and, and I am a leader and I want people that follow me to know that I have convictions and that I have people speaking directly into my life and that they can veto any decision I make at any given time. And that is hard. That is hard to do because there's times I want to do something. And when I pass it through my pastor or my mentors, you know, I call one, two, three, and four, and if I don't like the answer they give me, I call the next one. But no, most of the time, they're always telling me, Jeremy, just slow down. It's going to be okay. God's going to take care of it. And because of that, it's, it's made me the leader that I am today. And depends on who you're asking if I'm a good leader or not. But I do my best. And to me, those are some of the founding uh, things that you need in your life to be a good leader. There's um, this big topic that people, um, we hear tossed around sometimes in ministry circles about uh, this minister is ethical or that minister is not ethical. And, of course, it's kind of relative how you define what is a, rel- a ethical minister and what is a non-ethical minister. But I'd like to ask you for your perspective on it and how can, as a leader, how can you make sure that your name is in the ethical category rather than the unethical category? Man, y'all came loaded with some questions today. Um, ethics is a thing um, that a lot of people think is a thing of the past. Um, but it's not a thing of the past. It's so vital among us and amongst our uh, churches for our saints. Um, I, I do my best to be ethical on every level, not just for me, but the people that I serve, the people that I serve. And if I'm serving God's people, then I must be ethical. I've pastored now close to 20 years, um, and God's been good to me. But one of the things that uh, that you can get caught up in is, you know, somebody coming to your church from another church, and, and the next thing you know, where you're in that unethical group. You know, well, this guy don't have ethics, or he didn't follow protocol, or he didn't do what was expected out of him. And so... What I have done, and you can ask anybody that's ever pastored around me, um, is that I have made friends with every pastor within driving distance as I possibly can. Because if I'm in driving distance of their assembly, then there's a good chance that those folks are going to know that, and they're going to drive back from this church to that church and this church. I've been pastor here since January the 1st, 2019, here at Christian Life Center. 
what I did once I got here, and we needed this, and I wanted to do this because of ethics. I reached out to every apostolic minister in the Tri-City area. We meet the second Monday of every month at 10 a.m. We meet and we have prayer. We just don't do it here in our sanctuary on our campus. But we go to other ministers' churches so we can meet there. And we pray together and we ask God to unite us. I'm talking about men that's not just in the UPCI, but in the ALJC uh, that are independents, but they're apostolic brethren. They preach the apostolic message. And by doing that, it builds a relationship with these brethren that um, the people know that we're together, but they just don't know that we're together. We're seen together. And so ethics is followed on my part because not only am I close enough to these brethren, but we're close enough I can pick up the phone and say, hey, look, somebody from your, your church was worshiping with us today. I just wanted you to know that so that way we stay above water here and that we are doing our best to re stay respected amongst our movement and the brethren. And of course, I'm assuming the best of everyone, but if there's a minister in your circle that doesn't give you that same phone call, does that change your approach with them, or do you still give them that same phone call that you would like any other person that responds in the same way? That's, uh, what, what I do, and I've always practiced this, is that whether if I receive a phone call or not, I'm going to make that call. I am going to make a connection. A lot of times, I do it before I ever leave the parking lot uh, of that said service. There's sometimes I don't know where they came from because I didn't get to speak to them. But once I get that information, I will call that minister and I will leave a message, text them, email them, do whatever I can to make sure that they know. Because to me, an ethical person is not what they do to you, but what you do to them. Mm -hmm. And so I cannot make them be ethical, but I can sure take care of myself. And at the end of the day, it may not be quoted that way or shared that way, but I can go to bed with a good conscience saying, I've done everything I could to make sure ethics was covered during this transition. How does ministry ethics affect people within your church? As when you pull up here on the in the parking lot here at this church, you see this entire line of parking is different staff members. How do you make sure that your staff members are ethical to one another? What I do is we have a lot of training here at Christian Life Center, uh, and we're doing more of that in the year of 2020, is that the church is only as strong as its weakest leader. And so we put a lot of time in our leadership to train them and to get them on the same page as I am when it comes to anything, but most of all, ethics. And I have to trust them that they're going to do the right thing by coming to me uh, if, if a, a situation should arise that we need to address it with another pastor, another local church, 
uh, whatever we can we can do there to help that. I think if if we train our men and women to serve ethically, it will work. And the good news is is we have a team here that has uh, seen the vision of ethics and the way that it works. And I get calls, Pastor, somebody approached me about our church. I want you to know what was said. So if you get a call, this was the conversation. And believe it or not, I have gotten calls from Pastor. Well, somebody in your, well, this is what they told me. Well, how well do you trust that? All I have is their word. And until proven different, I trust them. And it, and it, what that does, and I, this may lead us on a rabbit trail, but what that does is that builds unity among the brethren and the sisters, and it builds a unity within our our church. That it that is what makes growth happen, because when you do what's right, you may not be recognized amongst the movement, but you'll be recognized amongst God, and He will add to your church for just being ethical. So I want to ask you, what's the um, what's the biggest challenge you've faced in pastoring over these 20 years? The biggest challenge? Yeah, your biggest challenge. Well, I, oh, Lord, that could be a lot of things. Um, but I would say the biggest challenge that I had, I went through a five-year period um, at the church Denise and I started in Missouri. Uh, I went through about a five-year period that it just seemed like we were fighting spiritual warfare every day. And um, that spiritual warfare led to, um, it led to um, the health in my body. Um, you know, I went through some health issues. After we got through that, uh, the, my wife was attacked with cancer. Um, and not only just one time, but two times, um, my um, oldest daughter uh, decided that uh, she wanted to leave our home, um, and uh, that was a difficult time during this five-year period. And then one of my closest friends and one of my closest men in the church who I would trust with everything that I had, everything. Um, we I felt betrayed, um, just caused some things, got into some moral, uh, moral failure. And um, I, I had 63 people walk out of our church at one time because of this issue and I was trying to handle it the best that I could and because I wouldn't go into detail to the body what was happening 63 people walked out and left our church in just a matter of minutes and I felt so alone because I was doing what was right to protect the body but yet I was losing the body and at all of this time, I had all of this going on. And it seemed like it was clearing up and everything was going to be good. And my mother passed away um, during this, this difficult time. And just a few months after that, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. Then another year, the doctors told us that she had uh, lymphoma. 
And we went to God and we believed and God healed her of that. But in the middle of that, I was hit so hard, guys. Um, My dad, who raised me in the truth, who taught me right from wrong and put me where I was at through a Christian education, did everything he could to shelter me. Three days before Thanksgiving, this particular year, he tells me that he's going to live a life of homosexuality. One of that, that hit me so hard because I'm leading the church. My wife's just battling cancer. My daughter is left home. Um, and, and at the same time, I've, I've been betrayed. I felt like I was betrayed anyway. And, and I was trying to hold it together. And then you got nodheads in your church. They don't know a whole lot of this, and they're just steadily putting pressure on you. Why you do this? Why you do that? And in the middle of that, trying to hold my sanity all together for my family, it was just very difficult. And I'll never forget it as I was sitting in the parking lot of our church. I was weeping, crying. If you would have drove by our church and saw me, you would have thought I had lost my mind. And and while I was sitting there, the Lord spoke to me. If he's ever spoke to me, he spoke to me this day. He said, Jeremy, it's good for a soldier to suffer sometimes. When he spoke to me that, God and I had a big battle going on right there. And this is what I said. God, do you know who I am? My name is J.L. Dainsworth. I got the largest church in this area. I'm the biggest church in this city. I ain't supposed to be suffering like this. I've gone through too much already. And now you're going to tell me this. I begin to weep and cry. A few days later, I'm still weeping and crying. I'm crushed. I'm praying. Still trying to lead our congregation into revival into continual growth. And God speaks to me this time, and he says, Jeremy, I am going to make your pain valuable. I thought, God, how in the world can this help anybody? This is no way valuable. I've gone through this. My wife, God, she can't go through much more. I I can't go through much more of this. My heart's going to fail me. But God is telling me, Jeremy, I'm going to make your pain valuable. And from that moment, I began to climb out of that. I still preach faith through all of this. I still worship God through all of this. And when I begin to come out of that, I have shared this testimony all across our great fellowship as, as you know, the uh, time come and I felt it. And so the darkest time of pastoring the most lonely of time happened over a period of five years. But because of that, today I'm stronger, and it's been beneficial to our ministry. There's uh, one thing I know about you for sure um, is that you loved your mother. Yes. You loved your mother a lot. And there's a rocking chair that you sat and preached from on Mother's Day. Yes. Can you tell us that story? The rocking chair that I preached from on uh, that particular service uh, was the rocking chair that that my mother sorry it was the the rocking chair my mother rocked me in when I was an infant 
uh, she was given that rocking chair by my great-grandparents. And we still have that rocking chair today. Um, it, it was so it was so many memories there. I remember my mother rocking me in that chair even when five or six years old. She would pray and she would say, God, give Jeremy an anointing like never before. God, anoint his life and lead him and direct him. For you see, at that time, I did not know that my mother was abused by a 33-year-old man. I did not know that my daddy adopted me. I knew none of those things. But as my mother would rock me in that rocking chair, she would pray the anointing of God over my life. And so it, it, it holds so many memories because, because of my mother's prayers in that rocking chair. I'm sitting before you today with the favor of God on my life. Mm -hmm. Not only did my mother give me life, but my mother saved me from so many. She protected me from so many things in my life. And because of that rocking chair, that's where we was building memorials before God. And now that she's gone on to be with the Lord, I can look back at those moments and say, that's where God defined me with a plan and a purpose. And now I'm headed toward that destination that God's given me. Um, you find yourself in a, a unique situation with your father choosing to live a, a particular lifestyle um, that it tends to be beat up quite a bit um, within Christendom. How do you as a pastor uh, negotiate the relationship with your dad based on the decisions that he, that he, has, uh, he has made in his life? Well, it, it put me in a very difficult situation because um, my dad knew that as a pastor, he was making decisions that I would have to take a stand somewhere along the way. Something my dad and mother both put into me was a respect for God's house, for God's people, and for the ministry. And so when my dad told me of his lifestyle, not only was I his son, but I was his pastor. He was on our ministerial team. So I had a lot of decisions to make very quickly. I had to make decisions that would protect the father-son relationship. I had to make decisions that would protect the church. So it was very difficult. It was a fine line that I had to hold my family together, but yet I had to show the church that I would not condone something that the Word of God condemns. And so I told my dad that night, I said, Dad, I'm going to talk to you first as a pastor. I need you to remove your belongings from the ministry that you're in. I said, you're welcome to come to church. We want you there every service. You need to be there every service. But as a pastor, I can no longer allow you to serve this congregation in the role that you are in. I want you to be there because you're only one prayer away from deliverance. Only one prayer away, Dad. And so I want you to, to do what's right. And then I used a little bit of, uh, 
authority and the role of a pastor. I said, after you remove your belongings from the ministry that you're in, even as you so much touch the doorknob of the entryway of where your ministry is served, I pray that God would strike you down until I could get there to pray you through to the Holy Ghost. Because we do not want sin on our ministry team. We just cannot have it. I said, now, Dad, I want to talk to you as a son. Daddy, I love you. You're always going to be my daddy. Until I take my last breath, Jimmy Dainsworth, you are my daddy. You gave me a life that millions would love to have. And because of that, I love you so much and I respect you. I may not agree with you, but I love you. You're always welcome in my home. You're welcome to be in my life. You're welcome to be a part of everything I do because you are my daddy. I said, but daddy, you got to understand that I serve in the ministry and every dollar I get comes from men and women that are faithful to God. And I cannot support you. As much as I love you, my, my money that I get to live on to feed my family, to pay my car payments and my house payment, it comes from faithful people of God. And I cannot disrespect God's money. Because some people say, well, after I give my tithe and offerings, what you do with it is up to you. And that is true. But I'm still accountable to God as a minister what I do with God's money. I'm the same way with my children. I've been, yeah, I've been told I wasn't right. But I respect God so much, I can't take a dollar and give somebody a dollar to support their habits. I just can't do it. And so... When I preach against homosexuality, this is what I do. I tell the fine people that God has put me in front of, I'm not against you or your family. For I have a very, my very own father lives this lifestyle. And I love him. And I respect him. And I would never, ever embarrass him because of the lifestyle that he lives. But at the same time, I cannot condone what he is doing. So I have to wear the role of two hats, the hat of a minister and the hat of a son. The role of a minister loves his soul. And if he were to walk through these church doors, we would welcome him home because he is a prodigal that has returned. All he's got to do is just come home. I preach this. You don't need a reason to come home. This is home. And you belong here. And so as a minister, the door is always open for him to return as a son as a son that's my daddy and I will never let his lifestyle come between he and I because he knows I love him and every time we talk I tell him dad I love you thank you for what you put into me thank you for raising me right and so it's difficult but yet we make it happen and yet I can I can tell people you may be going through this. Your sons and your daughters or your spouse may be going through this. But hold on. There's a God that loves them. And every day, I believe, today's the day my daddy's coming home. 
If there was a uh, certain individual listening to this episode that battles with homosexual tendencies or spirits, what would you tell them right now? I would... When you let down your guard of homosexuality, um, I'm, I'm, I, this may not even get played after me saying this, but I'll find out. Uh, we, we have all as people been tempted with things in our life through throughout my life i've been tempted with drugs alcohol you know i've been tempted with a lot of things and for people to say well i i would never do that or you know i would i've never been tempted by homosexuality um, and that may be the case but if we're all honest with ourselves every everything has come across our mind at one time or another. And so to a person that is battling with these tendencies, do not let down your guard. Always keep somebody in your life that can keep you in check. And this is how I know this to be true. My dad told me, he said, Jeremy, I have battled with this since I was a teenager. He said, but when your mother died... He said, my accountability died with her. Dad, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you come and, and get accountable to somebody else? Because when you have somebody in your life that you're accountable to, they know these things. That's why as a minister, I need those sitting at my table. I need my pastor and those three mentors. You know, I need these people in my life because they keep me in check. And every person that I have counseled through the last 20 years that has been tempted or even given in to homosexuality, it has always started when they got around people that they did not hold accountability to, that it pulled it out of them. So if you're listening today and you battle with these spirits, get somebody in your life that you can talk to, that can talk you off the cliff because every one of us, every one of us are tempted and tried and soon we will be tested. And if we don't have accountability, whether it be homosexuality or another sin, we will fall off the cliff and it's a long road back. But thank God you can make it back. How important is it as a pastor and leader to saturate your ministry with mercy because people under your ministry I'm sure have been a part of the team uh, like what we've just talked about that have, have fallen into various sins and, and even whenever it comes to just your any given sermon how important is it to, to show people mercy when they fell and grace to be restored I think personally and if I get on a rabbit trail, y'all just wave at me. I'm not looking, but wave at me. <laughs> um, I think one of the biggest mistakes in religion, period, is we have made it where people cannot fail. And when they do fail and fall, we have made it so hard for them to return because we have put ourselves in the place of God and they feel like they have to meet these requirements before they can return. 
I believe and live this. Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I need mercy from God. But backsliders refuse to come back to our apostolic churches because they feel like they've got to meet a certain agenda or a criteria or they got to meet, you know, the you know, they got to live up to expectations. And we overnight, guys, overnight we could have some of the greatest people on our staff if we would just get past this way. Well, they've got to prove this to me. They've got to prove that to me. I'm not God. When you repent of your sins and you are filled with the Holy Ghost, you've got everything you need. And if you're a backslider and you have failed and you've, you've messed up, you've destroyed your family, when you come home, and you repent of your sins, and God rebaptizes you with a, a fresh uh, of the Holy Ghost, then you are immediately restored in the kingdom of God. Now, with people, well, I don't know why we got to use them. They just came back. I have been hit so hard through my ministry. My God, how many times are they going to have to fail before you give up on them? They're going to have to fail until I die, coming back before I give up on them. I refuse to give up on people. Yes, they make it hard sometimes. But we have people right now that are called of God, that are the next camp meeting speakers, that are the next missionaries, Sunday school teachers, in a bus driver, soul winner, street rage leaders in our church right now. But people will not give them a chance because they have failed so many times. They're out there. If we can get them home, I preach, I reach for prodigals all the time. Well, pastor, I'm going to have to do, no, 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 no. You just get here. And in 30 seconds, we could fill up our Sunday school classes with teachers. If we would just get off of this high horse of, well, they got to do this, this, and this. We got to learn if God restores them, we have to restore them. You know, well, what if this? And and and, and I'm, I'm on a rabbit trail. But we got people that walk through these doors that are that they're backslidden. They know God, but they've walked away from God because they've been hurt or for whatever reason. When they come here, I want them to feel immediately they are restored. Yes. Here at Christian Life Center, we make it our number one priority. Once they're filled with the Holy Ghost and they've been baptized in that precious name, we plug them into a ministry. I had one guy tell me, not at this church, but I had one guy tell me. He spoke to me. He said, he said well, as long as I'm here, that'll never happen. I don't want somebody tattooed up. It's got earrings in her nose and, you know, their ears and all this standing out greeting somebody to come in my church. I said, don't you get it? Don't you get it? When they are saved, what I would call plan of salvation, filled with the Holy Ghost, they are qualified to greet people at that door or whatever ministry. Now, I know there's a certain level of ministries that, you know, we put people in, but reason people do not come back to oneness apostolic churches is they feel like they've got to meet a level of expectation right then and if they don't do it then they're not they're not wanted but not the case here where I pastor prodigals please come home please come home we got a place for you David K Bernard says a church unemployment rate should be zero percent that's exactly right 
Everybody has a place. But I'm going to play devil's advocate now. How about the folks that excel and they grow and you see all that happening in them? How does that affect you as a pastor? Oh, man. People that come in and and they uh, when they walk in and, and, and they've come uh, from – from the jailhouse to the church house, or you know, they come from the bar room to the church house, and and all them other places we could discuss, and and you see a life change. I'm gonna tell you what it does to me. Makes me want to go out and get 50 more of them just like it. And 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 if God, if you can do that for Kendra, and if God, you can do that for Paul, and if you can do that for Dale, God, just think about what you want to do for everybody else. That's that's out there in the same situation. Uh, a lot of times, it takes a little bit to see that growth. It takes it takes a while to see growth sometimes. But when you see it, it gives it, it just lights my fire to want to go do some more. Mm-hmm. Go out and get them. And I I believe this. If I don't do outreach, I shouldn't preach outreach to our church. If I'm not out soul winning, I shouldn't expect my church to be soul winning. I've heard this so many times. Y'all probably have too. Well, y'all go out and catch the fish and I'll clean them. Well, I don't like fishing and I don't like cleaning. I don't like fishing at all. But I like going after souls. And it's not my job to clean them. It's my job to go get them and let God do the cleaning. And in that, when you see growth, oh, Lord, it just excites me, builds my faith, makes me want to go put up a tent somewhere and have a crusade right there and then. That was a great question, Tony, but that wasn't a devil's advocate. That was a Christ advocate. <laughs> yeah, Christ uh, advocate. I looked at him and I said, what in the world are you talking about? That was a devil's advocate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so. The flip side, how about that? Yeah, we probably yeah. need to go back through and edit that. That was just, it's like working with a child. Anyway, so. Um, what is one thing, Brother Damesworth, that you wish you had learned earlier in your ministry? Mm. One of the things I wished I would have learned early in my ministry is that I don't know everything. I don't know everything. Um, and I still don't know everything. I'm still learning. That's why I need people in my life that I can learn from. I, I, every situation that I'm in, I try to learn something from it to not repeat it or that I can pass it on to somebody else. In my early ministry, I, I felt like sort of, you know, like a, a newlywed couple. They want the big house. They want, you know, everything right then, the furniture, everything. But it takes time. You just don't get all of that overnight. You just don't have a family overnight. And in ministry, I wanted everything overnight. I would come to church, and our pastor would be preaching, and I'm thinking, man, if I was preaching, Lord, this would be, you know, this would be awesome. If I were the one in the pulpit, and if I were the one leading the service, and if I was the one in charge. But what God was doing is he was teaching me. So when the time come for me, I would be prepared. So early on in my uh, ministry, I wish that I wouldn't have been move, wanted to move so fast that I would have taken the time to have learned along the way because what I didn't learn along the way is, is that problems are going to arise and I didn't have the answers. When I first started pastoring, I was just 26 years old. 
I knew that God had called me to pastor. But my first counseling session, I had to put them on hold and go call and get some help. <laughs> you know, you know, I was, you know, I thought I had it all together, but I learned along the way to a young minister to another young minister, stay as long as you can under that elder that God has placed you under. Because if you never get to that big church you want to go to, that's okay. Because it wasn't God's timing. It wasn't right. And so learn early. Learn early. I want to ask you a question here. Is this. So, Brian, I'd like your input, and I'll give mine as well. Not as a pastor, Brother Damesworth, but as a Christian, mm-hmm. what's your biggest fear? I'll tell you mine right now. And that, and I've said it before, is we are no longer unified as a body of Christ, where brothers start fighting against brothers and where um, um, positions and titles is more important than brotherhood and sisterhood where we have where we'll fight one another to climb to the top you know that's that's my biggest fear is there's a civil war right in the heart of, right. of our christian and what about you brian what's your biggest fear as a christian right now that we forget who we are and where we've come from um whenever you look at the old testament a lot of people they'll uh, summarize the entirety of the old testament um under the banner of whatever word they want to call it. Uh, To me, one of the biggest words that you find in the Old Testament, specifically in the Old Testament law, is the word remember. Um, Whenever they walk through the Jordan River, the command is for them to pull out the stones to set up an altar so that they would remember where they came from. Uh, Several of the uh, Ten Commandments, if I recall correctly, uh, it starts off talking about um, that know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It was a command for them to remember. And as you watch the narrative of the Old Testament, so many times they began to fall into different sins because they didn't remember who their God was that brought them out of Egypt because they go after the strange gods of the land that they were in. God commanded them to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but they did not honor that. Or the way I could put it, even though the Bible probably doesn't directly say it, they didn't remember that was what God actually meant. That's what God actually said. And so I think the biggest fear for, for me would be that we raise up a generation that doesn't remember what it was to really seek the face of God, to really hear the voice of God, to really be devoted to the Lord, to really what it is to win souls, and that we have a generation that builds churches with other churches' saints. Um, I think as long as we remember what got us to the dance, it will take us forward. Pastor, what about you? Well, gentlemen, those are great responses. Um, My biggest fear as a Christian is failure to win souls. I have been all of my life about people. Um, I'll crack a joke on my own self just to make somebody laugh to make a better day. Um, I think in my God has called me to be a soul winner. Before he ever called me to be a minister, I was a soul winner. Before he ever called me to be a pastor, I was a soul winner. In my biggest fear is that when I stand before the Lord, he would say, Jeremy, you you missed the mark because you refused to work harder to win souls for the kingdom of God. The good news is only good news is if it arrives in time. Right. 
And if I do not do what I can to spread the good news, I feel like I have failed. I don't want to be going backwards. I want to go forwards. And I will always do my best to be a soul winner. But I don't want to stand before God and him say, Jeremy, I put you in so many different places, but yet you refused to tell people about me. Everywhere I go, from a restaurant to the funeral home to the hospital to the jailhouse, vacation, I always want to tell people about God. And to me, my biggest fear as a Christian is that we would not see soul winning as a command. A lot of people see it as a suggestion. But his word says, go you therefore and teach all nations. Win the lost. And so that is my biggest fear as a Christian, that I would fail in not being a soul winner. How do you balance these important uh, priorities and convictions in your life uh, where as a pastor you you have to um, counsel with saints, but at the same time you have to be a soul winner, where you have to make sure uh, their staff is all in place, but at the same time you have to make sure you're there for your kids when they need them. All these different things, that all these different hats that you have to wear in life, how do you balance it all to where you don't exhaust yourself to the point where you just can't go forward? At times it's very difficult. But I have learned through 20 years of pastoring, you have to trust people. That is a hard thing to do, but you have to. I have been let down, betrayed by most of the people that I trust in my life, but I cannot say, well, because they've hurt me, I'm not going to trust anybody else. And so I keep God number one. I keep God number one. He's always got to be number one. The number two in my life is my bride. I love her so much. Um, we got married 25 years ago. We're going on 26 now. And she's number two. Nothing else comes before her other than God. Because I have, th- well, I have three children, and my three children have been taught this. You will soon grow up and leave home and start families of your own. I do not want to be emotionally divorced from your mother because I put all of my time in you guys, my children, and forgot her. Because we're going to be married till Jesus comes. And so I balance God in my family. First two things. My wife is second. Kaylee, Logan, and Gracie, my children God has given me. And my grandbabies now. And I got one son-in-law. Lord, help me, Jesus. Um, I, I balance that. They're, they're number two. And then the church. And I prayed this prayer when I started pastoring because I did not want this to be an issue. I said, God, you know I'm uneducated. I don't have a high school, uh, you know, the highest GPA in high school. I don't have a college diploma. Lord, if it wasn't for no child left behind, I'd probably still be in kindergarten. You know, I, I'm, I'm just not... An educated person. I don't. I don't say words right. Don't do things right. You know, can't add right and all. I can't even help my kids with their homework. Crying out loud. 
But I knew that. I don't think anybody can do that since Common Core. (laughs) That's true. Uh, But what I, I told God, I said, God, if you'll surround me with people that can do everything I cannot, I'll do what I can to the best of my ability. But God put people in my life, in my ministry team, that can do it all. Now, some pastors can't do that, but I sure can. God has given me uh, that ability. And so to balance the hats that I need to balance, God, my beautiful bride, my children, grandchildren, and son-in-law, and then I've got people in place here in the church. I have a family pastor. I have an executive pastor. And all of the ministries we have here at Christian Life Center come under their leadership. And I trust these two. I trust them. And I trust the leaders that God has put under. Are they going to fail? Why, Lord, yeah, I fail. I, I, I fall all the time. But I've got to give them enough leadway if they never have the chance to fail, they're always going to be held and they're not going to be able to do what they need to do, which will come back on me. And under the pressure, I will soon buckle. And so because God has given me the uh, the wisdom how to set up a team, it, it works. And so now my beautiful bride and I, every chance that she wants to, we get to eat lunch together. Because God has given given me a staff that I can take that time. Um, my son's a baseball player. He's in the military now, but he'll always be a ball player. I got to go to a lot of his ball games, different things that he was involved in because God has helped me to be able to balance those times. Yeah, I might have had to leave a ball game and drive two hours to the next preaching, preaching event, you know, walk in, well, where have you been? You smell like a ball game. But I was able to still balance that and still keep ministry, God, family, and still remain focused and get a Krispy Kreme donut from time to time. As a pastor, what... Pumpkin donuts are better. Go ahead. <laughs> That'd be Krispy Kreme donut. <laughs> As a pastor, what can you see in your saints that they may not be able to see in themselves? Oh, I see soul winning potential in every one of them. Every one of them, even the ones I don't like. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Well, maybe not. Uh, just kidding I, about their potential or just kidding you don't like them? <laughs> well, well, their potential is there. When, well, well last night uh, in our service that we had, we had two people get the Holy Ghost. They're in worship service. Uh, they're homeless. They don't, I don't know how they got here to our campus. But I immediately, when they were receiving the Holy Ghost, I stood off to the side and I started seeing potential. Man, this is going to be a couple that's going to have a testimony that's going to blow our minds. I was a youth pastor at one time and I walked up to a guy. He'd been kicked out of Tennessee camps. He was frowned on by the church. They even, on Sunday nights, designated somebody to follow him around the building because he was so bad. He was just mean. And I walked up to him one night, and I gave him a big old bear hug. And I said, hey, buddy, I believe in you. I believe that what's in your heart right now, God is going to use you for the kingdom of God, and there is so much potential there. 
And the reason I do this is, y'all not going to believe this, but when I was a kid, people didn't want their kids around me. I was too carnal. I liked the toilet paper yards. I liked to let air out of people's tires. You know, I was just a kid. They said I was a bad example. And said, how in the world can you let air out of a tire and talk in tongues? I said, it's real easy. Let me go show you. <laughs> and so I seen how people looked at me. And I said, never in ministry can I look at somebody without seeing potential. I'm telling you, guys, there is potential in every new convert we've got, every elder we've got, and every saint that's coming that God is sending to our campus. We find potential we find potential whether it be in a soup kitchen whether it be in a pantry whether it be in our rediscover life program whatever it is we've got a place that we can pull that potential out because everybody was chosen and handpicked by God you're not a mistake you're not a mistake God has allowed you to be born to be a soul winner and that potential's there. It lies within every one of us. We just need a leader to come by and help pull it out of us. Pastor, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm reading the time on your watch to see how long I've been going. You getting hungry? I'm always hungry. <laughs> I'll break a 40-minute fast in a heartbeat. <laughs> one of the books I'm reading right now is called Good to Great. Uh, author is Jim Collins. Um, a friend of mine put me on to this book. Um, I'm reading it because I don't want to be good. I've always said this. I'm a trendsetter. People don't like the way I dress. That's okay. I'm a trendsetter. I may not match because I'm colorblind, but I'm still a trendsetter. Everything I do, I want to try to do something that no other church has ever done before. I want to break out of this box and, 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 and people say, where do you come up with some of this stuff? Well, I just lay in bed at night at 3 a.m. in the morning and just God just drops it in my lap. And when I came to this book, it talks about how good companies, how good organizations could be so great. But the problem is, is they've got people on the bus, but they don't have the right driver behind the steering wheel. We've got an elder in our church that tells me this often. He says, Pastor, wherever you lead us is where we're going. So don't drive this car off a cliff. What he's telling me is that if we're going to be great, you've got to have a leader in your life that is going to bring the greatness out of you. And that's that's the reason I'm reading this book. Um, the other book I'm reading is called Streamline. I cannot pronounce the author's name because my hooked on phonics didn't come in. <laughs> but it's how called Streamline, how to create healthy church systems. I have a problem with I have a problem with being very spontaneous. You know, me and my wife are saying, you know, you want to jump in the car and go here? We'll throw bags in the vehicle. And it was six hours later, you know. We're somewhere. Regret the uh, decision. <laughs> you know, because I'm very spontaneous. And I know if I'm going to lead a strong church, I have to have good things in place and systems in place that helps me focus. Since I've read this book, 
I have passed th- this on to our leadership team. Uh, we are prepared four weeks in advance. This is what I learned from this book. Our Sunday school teachers, our music department, my sermon series, my, uh, my uh, sermons on Sunday in our 11 o'clock worship service. We're always four weeks ahead. Just hope the rapture don't happen four weeks before we think it's going to. But it's not that we're trying to be too organized, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to become great. And we're trying to become organized so that God can use us uh, so when people come in. You see, we're not dealing with a generation like it was when I was a kid. If you're not organized, your guests are going to figure that out right when they come in. One thing that, oh, Lord, it's a, oh, Lord, it gets under my skin so much. When I evangelized those uh, few months before we became pastor here at Christian Life Center, is going to a church and there was no directions to the restroom. That That is just something because when a first-time guest comes in and they don't know where to go, they feel like they're not welcome. And that's what this book does. Um, another book, uh, another book that I would recommend that that has changed my life and this church's uh, outlook is Becoming a Welcoming Church uh, by Tom Rainier. It's a little 100-page booklet. Another booklet that has been good to me is uh, The Autopsy of a Deceased Church by Tom Rainier. I started reading that uh, when God started dealing with me about resigning the church in Missouri, and I started seeing things that that book brought out that was in our team. And I said, God, we've got to fix this. We've got to fix this. Those are four books I recommend outside of the King James Version Bible. Yeah. Uh, what is what has God laid on your heart that you want to convey uh, to people? What, what's something that right now is, is a great passion of yours that you're just burning to get out of your spirit to preach to people? If we preach... The Acts 2.38 message. And we have repented of our sins, been filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, y'all may throw me off the program from saying this, but I'm going to say it. If you've been baptized in Jesus' name and you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, it don't matter how much I disagree with you, you are my brother in Christ. Amen. That is the entryway to the kingdom of God. And my goal is is to unite every apostolic church in my region, no matter what I've got to do. I don't agree with some of the things that they teach and do, but they are the apostolic doctrine. I'm not going to compromise what I believe because I know who I am. And my job is not to change them. My job is to unite us. And so in 2020, I'm going to preach every event that I'm invited to is to stretch your faith into uniting the end time church like never before. Because after all, we've got a rude awakening if we can't get along here and we snub each other at Walmart and then we expect to get to heaven and get along. Right. The problem is, is you're not going to heaven. You forget about it. You're not even going to make it. And so my goal is is to preach unity, apostolic doctrine, soul winning, revival, best I can. Pastor Damesworth, thank you so much for spending some time on this rainy, stormy 
what is it, Saturday evening now. I look forward to being with you in church tomorrow. Um, can we get one last thing before we log off? Can we get a Go Cubs? Is this my call? <laughs> Y'all, you've been listening to The Crucial Conversation. Break it down. Hey guys, this is Brian, and I'm Tony, and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast.